This is Rob Long with Martini Shot for the Ankler. A superstition, roughly defined, is anything stupid that someone else believes in. For instance, I sometimes assign certain trivial future events, like making it to the dry cleaners before they close, for instance, or finding a parking space on my street, with enormous personal significance. If I can get there before the lady shuts the door, I'll tell myself as I race to the dry cleaners, then the rest of my week will be hugely productive. If there's a space on the block, I'll say to myself as I pull onto my block, then at some point tomorrow my agent will call with good news. Now, on a very fundamental level, of course, I know there's no way that the street knows if my agent's about to call and the dry cleaner is absolutely and utterly unconnected to anything I might be writing, but, you know, I can't help it. The entertainment business, and probably every other business, is such a chaotic mess of competing signals and signs and omens and... It's often so baffling and contradictory that your mind naturally looks to something or anything to make some order out of it. I have noticed, for instance, that whenever I am out of the country and I get a message to call my agent, it is always, without fail, really good news. I mean, in my long career, I've had TV series ordered from payphones in France. I mean, that's how old I am. I remember payphones. I've had studio contracts renewed from rickety docks in Belize, and I once pitched successfully an entire season's worth of episodes in a $1,700 mobile phone call from Halong Bay, Vietnam. On the other hand, whenever my phone rings and I'm doing something prosaic and humdrum, like filling up the car or getting cash at the ATM, it's almost always deflating and depressing information. I've had TV series canceled standing outside of In-N-Out Burger, and I discovered that I'd been replaced by another writer while I was walking the dog. Worse, when I was cleaning up after the dog. So it's one thing to be fired. It's just another thing to be fired while carrying a small plastic bag filled, well, can I say this yet? Filled with dog shit. I'd say dog poop, but dog poop is what you're carrying when you get good news. Poop is a happy sound. Bad news, and it is what it is. It's dog shit. In ancient times, when the world seemed filled with random dangers and unexpected disasters, which actually, come to think of it, isn't all that different from today, it was only natural for people to conjure up some kind of primitive and foolish set of magic levers to push. If we all do a certain kind of dance, then the rain gods will smile on us. If we kill a chicken in a precise and for the chicken anyway, upsetting ritual, the wind will rise up and we'll be able to set sail. Hollywood is about the closest thing we have, these days anyway, to a primitive kind of tribal religion. So, obviously, this kind of thing still goes on. I'm pretty sure your pilot is going to get ordered to series, my assistant once said to me when I was complaining that the dry cleaner had closed a moment or two early, which is a very bad sign. This morning, he told me, when I put milk in my coffee, it swirled around in a spiral rather than billowing up like a mushroom cloud. Don't be stupid, I told him, but his good news carried me for the rest of the day until I was in the alley behind my house taking out the trash, prosaic, humdrum, and the phone rang, and it was my agent. Bad sign. But that's what we do in show business. We look for signs. The first time you drive onto a studio lot, the first time the gate lifts and you glide your car into the little fortress of money and cool and casual assurance, you feel like you've won. I don't know, the lottery, the big sweepstakes, the everything. The gates, the gates open. Good sign. In fact, the whole experience is like an ancient folk story, one of those myths when people wait at the oracle to see what signs the gods are sending. You drive up, you give your name and ID, you know, these days anyway, in the old days, you just gave me your name, and you wait, 
You wait for your name to appear on the list. You wait for the little nod. You wait for the gate to lift. You wait for the good news. And then it is such a great moment that first time that even what happens next, the sitting in the waiting area, the sweatiness, the pitching, the auditioning, the outright begging, or even, as it's been for me these days, the Byzantine, barely comprehensible directions about where to park, nothing can ruin that feeling. I tell them who I am. They are expecting me. And the gates lift. Talk about your metaphors. It doesn't matter how many times I've done it, but whenever I present myself at the studio gates and I give them my name and my ID and the name of the person I'm seeing there, I'm always a little surprised, actually, when the gates lift, when they open, when they hand back my ID and a little pass for my windshield and tell me to drive on. I'm always a little surprised, maybe even a little disappointed, too, in a way. Like, oh, God, now I have to do this. Now I have to sit and pitch. Now I have to actually deliver. So much easier in a way to be turned back and slink home and just forget the whole thing. When I started in this business, back it sometimes seems during the James Polk administration, the best moment of a person's career was when the guy at the gate recognized you and lifted the gate as soon as you made that left turn off of Melrose or wherever and into the entrance. Turn, swoosh, wave to the guy, you feel like you own the place. And then after September 11th, suddenly it was all about IDs and magnetic keys and guys with mirrors looking into your car for bombs as if terrorists would target a collection of drab stucco buildings spread out over 100 acres. About 90% of any movie studio lot is just old clothes and junk furniture anyway. So it would be like blowing up a huge garage sale. And also, anyone with enough motivation to blow up a movie studio probably has a deal at that studio. This is Hollywood. The people who want to kill us are the people we work with. But then, at some point, the process changed, and the guy in the security booth checked my ID, then printed out a little sticker for me. You know, the kind you're supposed to wear them on your clothing, but nobody ever does. It just brands you as an outsider. But the sticker had a large red stop sign on it, and after he printed it out, he took a smaller white sticker and stuck that over the stop sign on the big sticker and covered it up. So now I had a sticker allowing me to walk onto the lot, but on that sticker was a large red stop sign you couldn't see because it was covered up by a smaller sticker. So I took the whole thing, I shoved it in my pocket, I parked it, went to my meeting, I went home, I emptied my pockets on my desk, and the next day I look at the sticker and the big red stop sign is now clearly visible. The little sticker on top of it had overnight somehow become transparent. The sticker had invalidated itself automatically through some kind of ink technology. Yesterday, I could get onto the lot. Yesterday, I was welcome. Yesterday, the gate would rise. Today, not so much. Today, stop. Talk about your metaphors. The studio gates have been a big deal, the controlling metaphor for the entertainment business since forever. I can't think of a movie about Hollywood that doesn't have a studio gates scene or two or ten. And I can't think of a better way to convey both the sense of being locked out, of being on the outside of the entertainment business, and the giddy and intoxicating feeling of being right there in it. Gliding through the barriers and finding your very own place to park if your studio still paints names on parking spots, because a lot don't. A lot of studios don't bother because a lot of studios are only peripherally associated with a movie lot name that's emblazoned on the guard gate. There are a lot of studios without 
studios. The streamers, some of the smaller places, some of the bigger places that are now much smaller, they have to rent space all over town for every production they back, which has turned the old studio lots into extremely glamorous show business we works essentially. I'm ashamed to admit that as long as I've been working in the entertainment business, I have never really figured out the universal lot. I never know where exactly I am on it at any given moment. I can usually get to where I'm supposed to be, but I'm never sure where that is in relation to, say, the universal theme park. Is that over the hill? Is it behind the wall? And when the tour trams go by, which is usually when I'm standing in the hot sun after a pitch meeting looking for my car, I always expect the tour guide to say over the loudspeaker, and to our right, with a lost expression, a writer of some kind. If you look closely, you can see in his eyes that he's wondering if the meeting he just had was really a good one or just a really polite one. They don't say that, of course, because that would be a sad thing to say to happy tourists, but it would also be a true thing to say, and true and sad often go together. So when you're on a movie lot, you want to think happy thoughts, not true thoughts. You want it to be forever the same. When you're inside those gates, you want to feel good and smart and part of something important, and it's a big downer to be reminded that most of the people you're seeing are doing six-episode streaming service orders you'll probably never see and are renting outdated office space, and in many cases, they are paying for their own parking. For as long as I've been in the entertainment business, though, I've never really lost that feeling in the pit of my stomach when arriving at the studio gates for a meeting that this is where I'm gonna learn that it's all over for me. The guard is going to shake his head sadly. The office on the lot that called in the drive-on pass is going to just deny ever having heard of me. And the gate arm is going to remain down. And I'm going to have to do that thing that no one ever wants to do, which is to back out of the line. It would mean you're too scared to go down the slide. You're too broke for this many things in your grocery cart. You're too short for the Disney ride. You're somehow not making the cut. And when the people behind you have to back up, too, so the whole thing is a swamp of small, humiliating moments, which is why I think it goes through my head every time I drive into a studio, even when I know I'm expected, even when I have a key card and a parking spot and a job and checks coming in, I still know that when it happens, when it is over, this is how I'll find out. Gate arm stays down. Time to put the car in reverse. Talk about your metaphors. Which is why I think parking is such a big deal in Hollywood. Where you park and how close to where you're going. These are big deals in the entertainment industry. Not because we're superficial and obsessed with status. I mean, obviously, yes, we are. Both of those a lot, a real lot. But mostly because we're always looking for signs and signals and omens and indications about where exactly we are on the great, big, greasy power ladder. The signs and omens are important, of course, because no one will ever tell you... No one will ever tell you when it's over. It's a cliche that the old story, you know, about being told you'll never do something in this town again, whatever that something is, a person uttering that threat is simply indicating their own lack of potency. What really happens is nothing. Nothing is said. No words are spoken. No one tells you anything. It's just that the gate arm doesn't go up. Here's how every meeting in Hollywood happens. The person who works for the person you're meeting sends the relevant parking and entrance gate information to the person who works for your agent, and then all of that gets forwarded to you. And it's usually a lot of stuff you already know. There are, unfortunately, a limited number of major studios in town, and they're all pretty much where they've been for the past 75 years. So if you've been doing this for a while, you pretty much know where you're going. The term for that kind of person, by the way, is industry vet, 
or seasoned showrunner, or something else that conjures up a kind of a salt-and-pepper-haired professionalism instead of what it usually actually refers to, which is someone desperately clinging to past credits in an attempt to stay relevant. Wait, where was I? Okay, yeah, so I had a meeting. I had a meeting once, which was at a studio very close to a studio where I'd recently spent four years or so, and the meeting was with a producer who, for perfectly good, though now I realize outdated reasons, I associated with the studio where I had been going for four years, and not, in fact, to the studio where he was set up in plush offices. Now, the directions I got were detailed and perfect, and... Had I read them, I'd have been on time to my meeting. But what I did instead was scan them and think, yeah, 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 I got it, I got it. These are, these are, directions are wrong anyway. It says gate four, they mean gate seven. It's the wrong building number. But I, I know where I'm going because I'm an industry vet with a lot of salt and pepper professionalism. So I presented myself at the wrong gate. And it turns out at the wrong studio. And I said to the guard, who was someone I actually knew, who recognized me from the past few years, hey, I got a meeting, there's a drive-on pass in the system for me somewhere, which there wasn't, because wrong studio, wrong gate, salt and pepper stupidity. But the guard knows me, and he searched, and he searched, and he had one of those sad looks on his face that I think people who work in assisted living facilities get when they have to tell a resident, Mr. Long, I'm so sorry, there is no family member coming to visit you today. And he said, oh yeah, you know, there's nothing here for you. I'd let you go right in, but they're really cracking down on that. So are you sure it's today and not like a couple of years ago when you were hot? He didn't say that last part, but his eyes and his tone and his body language certainly did. It's today, I said, and I told him the building, which doesn't exist on that studio lot. And he said, you sure it's here and not across the street? At which point I picked up my phone and I read the email that was sent by the person who works for the producer at the studio, which was sent to the person who works for my agent and which was forwarded to me and which I, and this I guess is the point of the story, and which I did not read. And I discovered that I was supposed to be across the street at another studio right through gate four. You follow the blue stripe, you park in the visitor spot, and you're in the third bungalow on the left. So when I finally got to that meeting, the right meeting, 10 minutes late, I blamed the whole delay on the computer system at the studio gates, the right studio, not the one I went to first, and we all nodded sadly, because of course it's the computer's fault, it's the guard's fault, it's always someone else's fault, it's never the fault of the industry showrunning veteran, but it was my fault. I had not read the simple directions. I had assumed that I knew everything. I went to the wrong place. And then I blamed it on someone else. Talk about your metaphors. And that's it for this week. Next week, karma comes to Silicon Valley. For The Ankler, this is Rob Long with Martini Shot.